All right, Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Well, as we enter kind of into this Christmas season, it's a different passage to start with because it's actually dealing with the end of Christ's ministry, not his birth as he came into the world. But you know what? Sometimes you've got to kind of begin with the end in mind. This is actually kind of just a launching point for us here this morning. In that first Christmas, when all those people 
the shepherds had their experience and the wise men had their experience. And obviously Mary and Joseph and their experiences that they had surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ and the priest and, 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 and Anna at the temple and all the things that happened that first Christmas season. You know, the, the only thing that they had to prepare themselves for uh, it with was the Old Testament. That was all the Bible that was given to us up to that point. And so all they had to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah was that Old Testament. So I just thought, you know, how fitting it would be for us to take some time over the next couple of weeks and just focus on the Old Testament and look for Christ in the Old Testament. That which Israel had to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah the first time is that which we want to use to kind of prepare us for, for celebration of his coming as the Messiah. In John chapter 1 and verse 45, when Philip first came to Christ, and then he went and found his brother Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When Philip came to Christ, he recognized this is the one that Moses in the law talked about. So he could see things within the law of Moses that pointed him to Jesus Christ. Also we find in John chapter 5, Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now this is a big deal for them. Remember there is times where the Jewish people would say to Jesus, we know that God spoke to Moses. You were not convinced about. Jesus would tell them, you know who's going to judge you in the last day? Who's going to testify against you? It's going to be Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And it's the same thing that Jesus tells the disciples in this passage as well. It says that Jesus began to show them himself in all of the scriptures. It says in verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted that to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what kind of the categories that we want to start breaking that down into. But we're going to go a little bit farther than that because a little bit later in the passage, he adds the Psalms. It says that in everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so we got the Psalms that we can look into as well. And then we're going to actually add a category. And the reason is, is the Jewish people often identified their scriptures in pretty broad categories. Often it was just referred to as the law and the prophets. As we see, Jesus goes a little bit farther, breaks it down a little bit more, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then we're going to break it down just a little bit farther than that, and we're going to add history, because there's some history books in there. Between the law and the, and the Psalms and the wisdom literature, there's some books of history. And Jesus included them, because it says in all the Scripture, we're just going to kind of make it a different category. And then, just for logical reasons, I want to kind of deal with them in chronological order. We're just focusing on the first one today. And we want to see Jesus Christ in the law that was given to us by Moses. So it would be contained in the first five books. Remember, Moses wrote five books. They call it the Pentateuch, because penta meaning five. The first five books that we have in the Bible were written by Moses. So starting with Genesis, as we look at that, obviously the first thing that we see in creation, and though I would say that you don't blatantly see Christ in creation, he obviously was there. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, right off the bat, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. If you look at the book of Genesis, it starts very similar. In the beginning, God created. And so obviously Jesus had to be involved in that creation 
As we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, referring to Christ, it says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And so we see at the very creation that Christ is involved in the creation. Now, in fairness, I think that it would have been very difficult for the Jewish people reading about the creation account to see Christ in there, to see that it's him doing the creating. But that becomes, it's, well, it's like, it's a, like the old saying, the, the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. In other words, there's a lot of truth hidden in the Old Testament, which would have been kind of difficult for them to see, but starts drawing this picture. So that when Christ comes, it's kind of like, well, it's like a friend of mine. I remember I had a friend one time. We used to play Pictionary together. Lisa and I would go over to this other couple's house to Tim and Kelly McGrill's house, and we'd play Pictionary when that game was new. So it was a long time ago. And this guy was an artist. That guy would start to draw, and it just looks like lines here, lines there, lines kind of all over the place. And you're going, that's a group of lines. <laughs> that's... A, that's and he wasn't fast, which, you know, in Pictionary, you're kind of trying to hurry to beat the other side. So sometimes you're going, what in the world? Come on, hurry up, hurry up. And then all of a sudden he'd make this last stroke of his pencil and it was like, boom, there was the picture. Clear as could be and really nicely drawn. And I'm like, wow, we didn't always get to the end of the picture because the girls beat us most of the time. But that guy could really draw. But you know what? That's kind of what God does. Throughout the Old Testament, he's making a line here, a line there. He's, he's starting to draw a picture. And this picture becomes so ingrained into Israel's life. It's, it's part of the sacrificial and the priest system. It's part of their society. All of their holidays point to it. Everything in Israel points toward this coming of Christ. And it's like it's not until he's there that all of a sudden, boom, now you see it. And it becomes very clear. They could see enough to know that a Messiah was coming. They knew some things about him, that he was going to be, a, that he was going to be king because he was going to occupy the throne of his father David. But the clarity of it would not really come out until they actually saw Jesus Christ. Well, that's as we start to look through this thing, we're going to see things through the Old Testament that start to draw that picture that really becomes clear for us. It's a lot easier for us looking back than it was for them looking forward. At the end of the creation, there's built in another picture of Jesus Christ, and that is the, the Sabbath rest. Because God creates the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, He rested. It's a good principle, but it's not actually commanded until you get to Israel. It's actually a command for Israel. For the nation of Israel to have the Sabbath, Saturday, would be a day of rest to commemorate God creating the world in six days and then resting on that seventh day. But you know what? It also pointed forward. Because in the New Testament, we're told that that Sabbath rest, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. How is Jesus Christ a fulfillment of the Sabbath rest that we first see a glimpse of in creation and then commanded to the Israelites? Well, it's because in Him we rest from all of our labors. We cannot earn our own salvation. We cannot do enough good things. We cannot go through enough religious rituals. There are not enough good works to do in the world for us to achieve our salvation because we can never overcome our sin. And that's exactly why Christ came. Christ came so that He would go to that cross and pay the penalty of sin, which is death, to pay that on our behalf. We rest from our labors. 
You know what the Bible tells us in the book of Romans chapter 4? It is not until we stop trying to earn our salvation and just trust in Christ who justifies the ungodly that we actually are born again, that we actually come into a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to stop working. That's the point of the Sabbath. We have that rest in Christ. You know, I remember thinking that if I'm going to get to heaven, it's going to be because I have to be a good enough person. And then I remember all one day where it, the Lord opened my heart to the truth of the, of the Word of God, and I realized I can't earn it. He did it for me. I've got to rest in Him. I've got to stop working and just embrace Him. He is that rest. And, and that's when I came to Christ. You've got to stop working for it. In the book of Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul would say this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. In other words, he's telling these people, whatever holidays you decide to keep, don't let anybody judge you for it. You know, if, if you, if you want to keep the Sabbath, fine, keep it. If you don't want to keep the Sabbath, don't keep it. All the Jewish festivals and the Sabbath all pointed to Christ, so he's like, go ahead and celebrate them. But celebrate the fact that you have the reality in Christ. And that's what he says. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They're the shadow. Remember that picture God's drawing? They're the shadow. They're the beginnings of that picture. But now we have the clarity of it, which is in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 and 4 of the book of Hebrews, he's looking back at the Israelites of old as they were wandering in the wilderness with God. And he said, you know what? They, they tempted God. They, they rejected God. They turned from God steadily. And finally God said, enough. In my anger, you will not enter my rest. And then he goes on to say, Joshua talked about a rest. David talked about a rest. So obviously there's still a rest that's coming. And then he goes on to point how Christ is that rest. And so these, some of these things, as we look even back at the creation, Jesus Christ was involved in creation. There wasn't anything made that wasn't made through him. Even the rest that God took at the end of the week would start to draw that picture of Jesus Christ and the rest that we have in him. It's going to start to get a little bit more clear as we go through these passages. As we jump up to chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind. As we look through this, we see the curse at the end. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We find in here what is called the curse. God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat from every tree in the garden except for this one that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
the serpent approached Eve and he talks Eve into eating from the tr- fruit and she gave it to Adam and he ate it. And that was what plunged mankind into sin. This is the curse that God pronounces at the end of this time. Now, the New Testament, looking back on that time, talks about Christ fulfilling the curse. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. As you look through this passage and you see the elements of the curse, you see Christ fulfilling those in his life and in his death. They see that it involved pain in verses 16 and 17. And the Bible spells out the fact that Christ bore our pain. Pain went for, for Eve in childbearing and for Adam in his labor. But then as we get to dealing with Adam some more, God says now there's going to be thorns and thistles. And what would Christ do? He would wear a crown of thorns as he would go to the cross. He tells Adam, by the sweat of your brow you will now work. And we see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood as he bears the curse in our place. And then, of course, death. The last thing he tells them about the curse is you came from dust, to dust you will return. And Christ died on that cross for us. And so we see Christ fulfilling all of those things. A pretty clear picture begins to be drawn about Christ here. As we look at Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the snake, to the serpent, the devil, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is like the only place in the world you find being referred to as the seed of a woman. Women don't have seed. That's from the men. So there's something peculiar going on here. And when we get to the New Testament, we find the virgin birth. In fact, you don't even have to get all the way to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child. And then the fulfillment of that is found in Christ. What we're finding is this virgin birth. And, and that's what it has to be. Because if, it's, if Joseph is the father, then God's not. In order for him to be the Son of God, in order for him to be divine, he needs God to be his Father. And that's who he is. He's the Son of God. But you do see the whole gospel even in this picture because what's the rest of the prophecy? It says he will crush your head. He'll bruise your head. A head wound. Fatal. It says, but you will bruise his heel. And when you look at what happened with Christ, Christ did die. So in that sense, it was fatal, but it wasn't permanent. He rose again from the dead to conquer death on our behalf. He's the seed of the woman that is talking about. He's the one born of a woman, born under the law, so he could redeem us out from under the law. So we see this picture starting to be drawn. It's, it's faint. It's a shadow, but beginning to be drawn about Christ. But you know what? They're not even out of the garden yet. And we're going to see something even more clear the beginning of a picture that we would see copied over and over and over and over down through the ages. Because you know one of the things that I struggled with for a while was God told them the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And the day they ate of the fruit, they didn't die. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a problem for me. God told them you'll die. That day you'll die. Now, and I understood that death started then. Adam would eventually die. And so I know death started then and now there's going to be death, but they still didn't die that day. And then I also learned that in the Bible, it refers to death in about three different ways. There's a physical death. I think of Genesis 35, verse 18. It says, And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, because she died, the separation between our soul and our body, that's physical death. 
And then I also learned that the Bible also speaks of a spiritual death. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks to the Christians and it says, You used to be, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So even though we're physically alive, if we don't have Christ in our life, we're spiritually dead. Just like physical death is a separation of your soul from your physical body, spiritual death is a separation of your soul from God. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve that day. They were kicked out of the garden. They were separated from God. Before this, they walked with God in the garden daily. Now they're separated from him. They're kicked out. So they died spiritually that day. And for a while that was satisfying. But I thought, you know, it still ate at me. They, they didn't die that day. God told them, you'll die that day. Until there's one thing that made it all right. And you know what it was? When God first comes to them in the garden, they hide. They made fig leaves to cover themselves up and they go into the bushes and hide from God. And God comes calling to them in the garden. It's kind of like playing hide and seek with your grandkids. You can see their feet sticking out from under the cushion, but you walk all over the place saying, where are you? That's, I think that, that has to be what's going on because God knows where they are. But he calls out to them anyway. And finally they answer. And Adam says, we, we hid. We were ashamed because we were naked. God says, who told you you were naked? You never felt like you had anything to hide before. Did you eat from the tree? And they said, yeah, we ate from the tree. Well, actually, it wasn't that simple. He says, well, she, she did it. You gave her to me. She gave it to me. You know, <laughs> kind of her fault, kind of your fault. Not, not mine. <laughs> we still do that, don't we? At the end of this whole ordeal, he takes skins of an animal and he clothes them. You know what happened? God in his mercy allowed them to live, but something had to die. And this innocent animal that didn't do anything wrong died that day so that it's clothing could become Adam and Eve's clothing and cover their shamefulness, cover their sin. And now the picture's starting to get more clear. And it's going to get more clear. We don't have early commands on whether or not they're supposed to continue sacrificing, but there must have been. By the time we get to some of Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, Abel offers the sacrifice that's acceptable. What is Abel's sacrifice? It's an animal. It's a lamb from the flock. Something dies again, and that sacrifice is acceptable. And then when we get up to the law, it contains sacrifice. And down through the ages, Israel will sacrifice millions upon millions of animals for their sins. And when they bring the sacrifice into the priest, they'll put their hands on the head of the animal as a symbol of transferring my transgressions onto this animal. And the priest cuts its throat and drains its blood and sprinkles it on the altar. And this innocent animal dies to pay for my sin, which is worthy of death. And the mercy of God continues as the atonement is made for their sin through a substitution instead of themselves. You see, that's exactly what we see in the Garden of Eden. There was a substitution for them. They didn't have to die that day. The animal died instead. And you know what? You follow that all the way through. And then Jesus comes walking by the Jordan River. And John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 8, it's looking at the sacrificial system. They had the tabernacle. And that's where the priests worked. And that's where they'd offer the sacrifices. And he says all that stuff was a copy, a shadow, a pattern. All these sacrifices down through the years in the office of the priesthood, offering up the sacrifices, all of it was meant to be a picture of Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus Christ would come, Israel would have had this picture so cemented into their understanding that it should have been clear. And that's exactly why Jesus would say, why don't, if you say you believe Moses, why don't you believe what he wrote? He wrote about me. 
The prophets wrote about me. It's all about me. And that's what we look back through the Old Testament. It is, it is truly all about Him. The next thing that we come across is the flood. And in the flood, God judges the world and He delivers just one man and his family. He delivers eight people, Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives. And He delivers them. And the, 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 the ark that he gets delivered in is Noah has to build this ark, this huge boat that's going to have his family and two of every kind of animal. That ark is a type, that is a picture of the salvation that God provides for us in the New Testament. Repeatedly, it looks back to the time of Noah and the salvation that was provided for Noah during that time. It says that that's an illustration of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. In Second Peter he lists the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he lists the destruction of the world through the flood. He says this is an example. He says the salvation of Lot. Lot lived within Sodom and Gomorrah, but he was a righteous man living within a wicked city. He delivers Lot out of the city and destroys the city. In the flood, at Noah's time, he has righteous Noah and his family and a very wicked world. He delivers Noah out of the world into the ark and he destroys the world with a flood. At the end of the passage, it says these things are given for examples. That God knows how to judge the wicked and deliver the righteous at the same time. These things were a picture of the coming salvation. And then he chooses Abraham and he gives him this promise. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice it's universal in its scope. He's going to become a chosen nation, but it's going to be to bless the whole world. And it's through Christ that that blessing would come to the whole world, one of Abraham's descendants. But notice with this, it's interesting. Because God tells him, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. Abraham and Sarah haven't even been able to have kids at this point. It's going to be 25 years before God lets them have a child. And so by the time they have a child, Abraham's going to be pushing 100, Sarah's pushing 90. They're well past the age of childbearing. And then God surprises them. Hey, guess what? Now you're going to have that child. Now, it's an interesting thing. Let's look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Abraham saying, What can you give me? I'm childless. He'd counted on that promise that God gave him these years earlier in chapter 12. But how can you be a great nation if you can't even be a good dad? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Why did God make Abraham wait 25 years when he was already 75 years old? Why did God make him wait till he's 100 years old and Sarah 90? I think there's two reasons. One reason is I think because God wanted to show this is definitely the child of promise. You couldn't have done this. This is my miracle to you. He wanted it all to be based on the promise, not your own human effort. But secondly, it's all about that son. It's all about that son. It would all come through that one son. And that's what we see is the focus. 25 years of waiting 25 years of pregnancy tests, 25 years of praying, 25 years of rehashing the promise in your mind. What did did he say exactly? 25 years of focusing on this one expectant child. And you know what? It finally comes to pass. And they have a child. 
And when we get to chapter 24, the child's about 12 years old and God comes to him and he says, Now, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to go to the place that I'm going to show you and I want you to sacrifice him. says Abraham gets up early the next morning. Isaac's up early with him. A few servants, some donkeys, and they load up. And you know how long they travel? Three days. And they get there on that third day. And Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? We've got the wood. We've got the fire. We've got like everything we need except for the sacrifice. And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. It's prophecy. He takes his son Isaac. He ties him up and he puts him on the altar. And he takes out a knife and he's just about to plunge it into his son Isaac. God stops him and says, now I know that you love me more than anything, even more than that son of promise. And then... Abraham looks over and there's a ram, just as he had said, stuck in the thicket. And he takes that ram and he sacrifices it before God. God provided the sacrifice. But you see, it's all about that son, that only son. It was drawing a very clear picture of what God would do one day when he would send his son, his only son. And he would come and he would be sacrificed on that cross in our place. By the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, very clearly all leading toward God's sending of his son to be the fulfillment of all these things.